Paul Seely, who, after graduating from Westminster Theological Seminary, spent 20 years carefully studying each verse of the Bible in its original language from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. Uh, in the process, he read widely in ancient Near Eastern history and literature, as well as intertestamental and Greek and Roman literature. Uh, he has been studying Genesis 1 to 11 for the last 20 years and has a number of papers on these chapters published in Perspectives, the ASA journal, as well as the Westminster Theological Journal. Uh, he has two grown sons and resides with his lovely wife in Portland, Oregon. So let's welcome Paul. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, uh, Bernard Ram. He was a Baptist theologian and he was trained in the philosophy of science. Is this off? Uh, Bernard Ram, that's better, yes. Uh, Baptist theologian trained in the philosophy of science. And he wrote his book to what, two major purposes one, to establish theism as a valid part of our understanding of the natural world and also to try to move evangelicalism away from fundamentalist obscurantism to a more enlightened approach. Uh, he was particularly concerned about the uh, inroads of flood geology. He recognized that the Bible is uh, affected by the culture of the times and even has a section trying to show how you can distinguish between the cultural and the transcultural in the Bible but he still held to absolute inerrancy and consequently thought the science in the Bible uh, would be inerrant and his approach to science and scripture uh, at the time of the book was concordist. Now there's an article by Joseph Spradley that came out in 1992, the, day, the year of Ram's death, in which Spradley takes us uh, in the June 1992 issue of, uh, of the journal of the OS of Perspective, changed the name of Perspectives at that time, uh, he takes us along the uh, Ram's journey from Concordism uh, to a position uh, and I, which you can read very, very close to where I'm coming from. Ram broke the book up into four, the second half of his book up into a set, four sections, astronomy, geology, biology, and anthropology. I'm going to follow that same order give you some idea of what Ram had to say and then how ancient Near Eastern literature uh, would change or add to it. Uh, Ram rightly noticed and uh, said that there's a great contrast between the way that the Old Testament has a pure monotheism and God over inanimate matter and the and ancient Near Eastern in which you have polytheism and all the parts of the universe are animated by a God. He also noticed that there's quite a difference toward astrology, important in the ancient Near East and frowned upon in scripture. Ram also made, a, well he made in this a careful attempt uh, to establish theism, as I said, and there's quite a case made there and worth reading. Um, toward the heaven, I get mixed up <laughs> where I'm going here, but Ram's uh, theological training and philosophical training was very broad and he didn't have the, the background, I don't think, to really deal with details. 
the exegetical details. And so when he, he came to, he heard about the three-storied universe being in the Bible, but he rejected it. The idea of a solid firmament, an ocean above it, an ocean under the earth, he rejected that as uh, being liberal. But he didn't give any explanation as to what the firmament was or as to what the waters above and below were. Now, ancient Near Eastern literature uh, testifies in a number of ways that the firmament, that is that blue thing we call the sky, was as solid as the earth itself. In Sumerian, Babylonian, and Hittite texts, it's firmly attached to the earth at the beginning of creation and then separated from the earth, in one case, by having it sawed off. In a Babylonian text, we are given the kind of stone that they believed the firmament was made of. In uh, Jewish uh, later materials, the Jews uh, speak of the firmament and they speculate, what is it made of? Is it made of clay or copper or iron? So the, the evidence from ancient Near East is quite clear that people at that time thought the firmament was absolutely solid. And I don't know of any exceptions uh, to, that, to that view. The Old Testament doesn't give any evidence that the firmament is thought of as not solid. Some evangelicals suppose that the rakiach, which is the Hebrew word for firmament, refers either to the space above the earth or to the atmosphere. But the biblical evidence excludes those two ideas. How's, here's how. On the, in Genesis 1-2, the earth is covered by an ocean and is covered in darkness. The Spirit of God is soaring, represented as a wind or a bird, soaring over the face of the waters. Well, where is he soaring? In the space above the earth. In Genesis, uh, in the second, uh, uh, excuse me, in the first day of creation, when God creates light, where does that light appear? Surely it appears in the space above the earth. So in the biblical account, there is space above the earth before the second day. But on the second day, the scripture says, God said, let the firmament come into existence. That is, let there be a firmament. And it also says God made the firmament. So the firmament did not exist until the second day. Space existed before the second day. Ergo, this firmament is not space. As for the atmosphere, we read in Genesis 1.17 that the sun, moon, and stars were placed in the firmament. And I don't think I have to tell anybody here, they do not exist in Earth's atmosphere. If one asks the Old Testament, what is the nature of a rakiach? That is the firmament, that blue thing we call the sky. The answer is given in Ezekiel 1.22, where a rakiach is not a gas, nor mere space, but a solid platform. There can be no question about its being solid. Also, in Genesis 1, the firmament, firmament's function is to hold up the ocean above the sky, which is the same function it has in the Babylonian creation epic. That function implies that the firmament is solid. Ram also rejected the idea that the Bible was 
uh, speaking of an ocean above the sun, moon, and stars. Genesis and the Babylonian creation epic, however, support this idea. In Genesis 1-6, the primeval ocean of Genesis 1-2 is divided into two parts, as occurs also in the Babylonian creation epic. In Genesis 1-7, as in the Babylonian creation epic, half of the primeval ocean is placed above the firmament. That is, excuse me, and then in uh, Genesis 1.17, as we say, the sun, moon, and stars were placed in the firmament. That is, under the firmament, having that blue thing as the background. So the sun, moon, and stars have the blue thing, the firmament, above them, but the waters, the half of the ocean from Genesis 1.2, is above the firmament. Consequently, the ocean is above the sun, moon, and stars. Ram interpreted the Bible as, as saying that the stars are a long distance from the earth, and he matched that to the, our modern view, which we, we also say. But there's an ancient Near Eastern story that a gentleman called Etana went to the second story of the universe above the firmament, and he got there by flying on the back of an eagle. This suggests that they didn't think of the stars and universe as being light years away, but were actually rather close. There's a Canaanite text that talks about the dew falling from the stars to earth. Again, rather small universe. Various Bible verses indicate that although the Hebrews thought of the firmament as above the sun, moon, and stars, they could not excuse me, they did not think it was much further away from earth than the clouds. Thus Psalm 36.5 and 57.10 speak of God's faithfulness as being above the clouds, the implication that the clouds are about as high as one could go. In later Jewish literature, it was thought that the clouds rise to the firmament, are filled with water from the ocean above the firmament, and then travel and discharge it as rain. Because the ocean above the sun, moon, and stars is really relatively close to the earth, there's no problem with having that ocean discharged through the windows of heaven, the windows of the firmament, as rain during the flood, which they do according to a majority of, ancient, of uh, evangelical testament scholars. The astronomy of the Old Testament is then the astronomy of its times, a solid sky with an ocean above it, the sun, moon, and stars below it, but not much further away than the clouds. The revelation of God in Scripture is not of science, but of theology. That theology, namely that the God of the Hebrews created the heavens and the earth and all their host, and that the universe is not composed of gods, but is inanimate and unified under one God's control is trustworthy theology, even though it is interwoven with the Hebrews' ancient understanding of the physical world. Scripture claims clearly to be authoritative for faith and practice. However, as I have argued in my book, Inerrant Wisdom, no scripture claims that the Bible is authoritative for science. Ram's second section was geology, and the first thing you want to discuss is how do you relate Genesis 1 to modern science? 
And he said that the two can be harmonized if we understand the days of Genesis as a series of pictures topically arranged but still in line with a real progression of creation. It is evident, however, from the second verse of Genesis through the third day that the account does not agree with modern geology. Genesis 1-2 clearly sets forth the early earth as covered with a deep ocean. And this condition must precede the work of the second day, which is the splitting of this ocean, since you can't split an ocean that isn't already there. And the work of the third day, where the earth arises out from under the waters below, is chronologically subsequent to the second day where the waters are put below. So there is a sequence there in scripture going from an earth covered with an ocean to a dry earth, dry land. In the geological idea uh, teaching today, uh, and I think rightly so, of course, that in the uh, Hadean epoch, Aeon, when the earth was first being formed, the only thing liquid was perhaps a magma ocean. The dry earth, the crust forms first, and then later, some, maybe 250 million years later, you finally get an ocean, just the opposite of the uh, sequence in the Old Testament. Now, if you go to ancient Near Eastern literature, Sumerian, Babylonian, and Egyptian, you find that the creation often begins with a giant ocean, and also uh, darkness is often mentioned. The Old Testament is reflecting those ancient Near Eastern ideas. As for the ocean itself, according to modern science, it may have come into being as the result of outgassing of volcanoes or from ice freighted in on asteroids and perhaps some other uh, methods that we haven't completely discovered yet. But there is, I think, little question that modern science will not adopt the view that the way we got our ocean is that the Earth was originally covered with an ocean twice as big and then it was cut into by the sky Half of it was lifted up above the sun, moon, and stars, leaving the other half to later become our ocean. Yet that is the scenario that we find in the Bible, and it is very close to the scenario we find in the Babylonian creation epic. The second thing that Ram deals with in this section is Noah's flood. He presents arguments against flood geology, which are still valid and valuable today. And he realized that a global flood was highly improbable. He attempted to maintain the historicity of a local flood by appealing to a once respected geological theory, which unfortunately was out of date even before he wrote his book. This somewhat puzzles me, but that is what he did. Uh, if the flood account was based on a historical flood, I believe it's based on, and I do believe it was, it's based on the flood of 2900 in Sumer, which is often spoken of in the journal by uh, Dick Fisher and Carol Hill. That the purpose, however, of the biblical account is to teach theology rather than history is, I think, confirmed by the fact that the biblical account describing the flood is, as, describes the flood as much larger than a merely local flood. Apparently, in order to present the God of the Hebrews as a more than merely local God, the writer 
or final editor of the flood account, presents the flood as being not only covering the Ararat Mountains, but as a cosmic worldwide cataclysm virtually reversing the work of the second day of creation. And again, you will find that interpretation in most of your evangelical Old Testament commentaries. The biblical accounts of creation and flood rest upon ancient Near Eastern traditions and motifs. Modern science makes it clear that they are not revelations of how God created the universe, nor a scientifically accurate description of the flood. The ancient science of Old Testament times has been accommodated by God as a means of revealing reliable theology to the ancient Hebrews. We must always remember that we're reading the Old Testament text over their shoulders. On the other hand, even though the science is that of the, old, is that of the ancient Near East, the theology is very different. In both accounts, the theology is clearly in contrast. Humans are not, in the biblical account, the insignificant afterthoughts which they are in Mesopotamian theology. They are the climax of creation. In the Mesopotamian flood account, the reason for the flood is that the chief god could not sleep because humans were making so much noise in the first story of the universe that he couldn't get any rest. The Genesis account, much more soberly, finds God bringing the flood as judgment upon sin. In the Mesopotamian account, the, flood, the gods are very frightened by the flood, and they are also very hungry and glad to get that sacrifice when Utnapishtim, the Babylonian Noah, gets off the uh, ark and, and, and makes the sacrifice for them to eat. Uh, this is in stark contrast to the majestic sovereignty and self-sufficiency of the God of the biblical account. The third section is biology, and Miranda has quite a long discussion there of the origin of life and of evolution, and he's open to evolution, as we'll mention again in a moment, but doesn't completely accept it for humans, at least. But these two subjects are, to my knowledge, never mentioned in the Old Testament, nor in ancient Near Eastern literature, and so that makes my discussion of this section end right here. Anthropology is the last section. Ram has a very good review of various theories of how to relate Genesis 2 and 3 to anthropology. And as I was saying, he, he accepted the possibility of theistic evolution, but he was not ready to draw the conclusion that it had really occurred. He wanted more data. He sees paradise as an actual garden set off from the outside world. Uh, after man sinned, he had to go out of the garden into the outside world with its long history of weeds, carnivores, and death. I think the problem Ram has here, however, is if we take this, the garden and, and its story literally, then the culture of Adam and Eve dates them to the Neolithic age, that is, not earlier than 10,000 B.C., and if Adam continued growing fruit trees as he continued growing grains, the archaeological record would date him to around 4,000 B.C. This is, of course, far too late for the first human or the first sin. Making the first human from dirt and Eve from a rib is also uh, quite out of sync with the idea from science, and I think it's sound, 
that humans evolved from living creatures. Genesis 2 and 3 are neither literal history, nor are they accommodations to a specific ancient Near Eastern story. There is no ancient Near Eastern story of a first man and the first sin. They are, however, accommodated to ancient motifs, as Dennis Lamru teaches. The motif of the first man being made from dirt occurs a number of times in ancient Near Eastern literature, but the theology is very different. In Mesopotamia, man is not only an afterthought, he's created to take the place of the lower echelon gods who had rebelled against doing all the work to make food for the gods. He is just an anonymous slave, to my knowledge, in ancient Near Eastern literature. He's never even named. He's not the head of any genealogy. He's just an anonymous slave. And I think right here we see the enormous contrast with biblical revelation, which shows God with showing a personal concern and love for man from the beginning, from the creation, and then right on through. The motif of a pristine paradise, free of death and carnivores, occurs at least once in ancient Near Eastern literature, and a second myth spliced into the story of Arata and the land, excuse me, spliced into the story of Enmerkar and the land of Arata tells of a time when there were no carnivores. This motif is behind Genesis 1.30, where the animals are given only green plants to eat, chapters 2 and 3, and Isaiah 65.25, where the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The story of the fall itself is a theological revision of another ancient Near Eastern motif. Two different Mesopotamian men, Adapa and Gilgamesh, were each given an opportunity to eat a particular food and thereby grant, gain immortality. They both lost their chance by chance. Although one might read the story of Adapa as missing it because he obeyed his personal God. The Hebrew revision is trenchantly contrastive. Man did not lose his opportunity for immortality by chance much less by obedience to a god, but rather by disobedience, willful sin. The biblical lesson, man is a sinner who needs redemption and forgiveness. It is thus a Hebrew version of two ancient Near Eastern motifs, a paradise motif and a lost opportunity motif, which reveals the sinfulness of humanity and sets the stage that ultimately leads us through the scriptures to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, we have lots of time for questions here, and I see one right in front. Dr. Can you do you want to just say that once more a little louder? Sure. That would be great. Thanks. Does the historicity become subservient to the motif, or is the motif constructed on the basis of some aspects of the historicity? And if so, how would you say that that is accomplished? <laughs> One thing about this audience, you know, we could really do the questions. <laughs> Well, I think the I think the motif is uh, is not based upon historicity. I think it's uh, based on other factors. I haven't really totally thought that through, 
but uh, it takes precedence over historicity. I just thought all I would say at this point. Oh, the evolution of Ram's thought. Okay. Uh, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> because there, there's an article by Joseph Spradley in the June 1992 issue of Perspectives. And the, and the title of that article is, uh, I believe, Changes uh, in, in Ram's Approach to Science and Scripture. And it's a very, very good article. Uh, filling in the background of how he went from Concordism uh, in principle and even to some extent uh, clearly agreeing with what I'm saying. I don't think he would have done the details of what I'm saying, but I think that if he had heard me today, uh, he would have basically agreed with me. And so he just slowly progressed. You actually find the beginnings of his thinking about culture in his very first book. Like I say, he recognizes culture, but he kind of talks both sides because it isn't clear to him that the, that just how important the culture is. But he goes from there, and it, you can see it evolved in uh, Spradley's paper, which incidentally, I've got about 25 copies of a quick little idea of his paper that I'll leave on the back that you can pick up. And I have 50 of my own that I'll leave on the back. Great, and I see another question. This book was so important in the you know, 60s and 70s to help pastors from the terms of evolution and science. What book would you recommend to Uh, yes, you're uh, pushing my luck here, you know. I always think about the scholars, but I know we do have to do the pastors. And I'll tell you, the book that uh, John Walton is recommending, and that I haven't actually read yet, but I've read some other works by him, and that's uh, the book by Gordon Glover called Beyond the Firmament. Uh, Gordon is a remarkably capable communicator and understands what's going on here, and I, that's the book I would recommend. Well, if that's all, we're going to take a uh, short break until um, then, uh, until 10, 10.30. So but let's, let's thank Paul once again. And okay, thank you.